As you find your way back to your seat, and if you have a Bible, we're going to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we began there last week, so not too uh, much of an unexpected uh, place to open our Bibles to. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, if you've been with us for any amount of time, when we do these uh, New Testament deep dive weeks, months long Bible studies, uh, we like to pull out a central or central themes, maybe sometimes one, sometimes a couple. We like to bring out these anchor themes that will guide us as we go through these books, because I want you to be able to open up the book years from now and say, okay, what, what, is the, what is the theme of this book? What am I looking for in this book? And if you have study Bibles and commentaries of your own, hey, that's great. Uh, but I believe there is, uh, there is something uh, special when the people of God get together as the church of God and unpack the word of God and in these kind of settings. So I believe these studies can benefit you from, from years and years, and, and hopefully uh, that's something you can, you can echo. Um, now, some may say, well, you know, why do we need to divide up the Bible into different, you know, give a theme to different, different books? Isn't the, the, the theme of the whole book the same? Uh, of course, the Bible is a cohesive book. Uh, it, it, it is, we, we have copies that are hardback or leather bound, or if you op- have an app on your phone, you open the Bible and there's everything. You can just go from Genesis to Revelation if you just keep scrolling or you just keep turning. Uh, but obviously, God inspired the Bible as 66 different books, right? Uh, there, there's Old Testament, there's New Testament. Uh, there's different types of literature in the Bible. Uh, not every book is the same style. There are poems and songs. There are narratives. There are documentaries. There are biographies. Uh, there are sermons and chronologies, and there's letters. So I think we, when we study the Bible, it's important that we understand the type of literature that we're reading, the type of book that we're reading, and type of text that we're reading. It's important to know the context. Uh, you know, why is, uh, why is one book addressing a church and another book addressing uh, a, a nation, or why is one book written uh, as a narrative and another book written as a letter. So when we do these studies, I want us to make sure that we know what kind of book we're reading and what was the reason for it being inspired. Uh, yes, all of the Bible is equally inspired, but each book is uniquely written, which is why I think it's important to study these books individually and, and, and separate from one another. Uh, so we began uh, with a very meticulous introduction to 1 Corinthians last week, uh, and uh, I, I want to, as we do in these, kind of bring those central themes back up before us as we get, as we get started with tonight's lesson, uh, because it's important that we kind of know where, what we're looking for and where we're headed. Uh, so in our introduction last week, we highlighted or we underlined uh, two separate passages or, or two sections of the first chapter that kind of help us understand what the theme or the themes of this book are going to be. Uh, and we highlighted verse 2, and then we highlighted verse 5 through verse 8. So uh, if you want to look at those with me, I want to refresh us and, and remember and, and kind of uh, get back under the umbrella of, of what, our, what our theme is going to be in 1 Corinthians. Verse number 2, this is kind of Paul stating it very clearly why he's writing this book. He says, to the church of God at Corinth, to those who are sanctified or set apart, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be holy ones or disciples of Jesus, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he kind of states a, a goal and a reason for writing. And he says, I'm writing to the church at Corinth, but this can be applied to every local church 
Those that are gathering in the same way that you at Corinth are gathering. And I'm, I'm, you know, he wrote what he wrote, what God told him to write. But I'm so glad that last part is in there because this isn't just a book appropriate for the people at Corinth to hear and read 1900 years ago. But that last part means it's appropriate for us just the same. It's as relevant for you and me as it was for them. And that's an exciting thing to open up the Bible. Uh, It may not say Risen Church or Lincoln or it may not address us here and now, but in spirit, it speaks to you and me. So we uh, broke that down and said, Paul is writing so that we are set apart unto discipleship so that we might know we are set apart to God unto discipleship, that we are made to be saints or disciples of Jesus, that we have been saved unto something. We're not saved. And then he says, hey, I'll see you later. We're saved for a purpose, for a reason. And that reason is we are disciples of Jesus as members of our local church. That's more than my name's on a roll. That's more than I'm an attendant. That is as participants, as functioning members, right, of a local body of Christ, a local body of believers. So there's that plurality. There's that we come alongside one another and and, and emphasis on the fact that he says called to be saints. We're called together. We talked about that a lot last week, remember, that, that, that phrase, together or that that phrase with all who in every place that's one greek word that means together so we're called as a body as a group as a family so in christ we belong to his body and as with anybody there are many members of the body and that'll come back in handy uh and come back in in view later on in first corinthians but he again he's talking about these themes at the very beginning. Uh, so kind of 1B of, of when it comes to the theme, uh, kind of the other side of the coin is 1 Corinthians is Paul's appeal to every Christian that we maximize our opportunity and responsibility within Christ's body. The church, being a member of the church, being a participant in the church is a sacred, precious opportunity for every one of you. And Paul is writing that we might maximize this opportunity given to us. And because we, now that we are aware of it and now we are understanding of it, we are responsible to maximize that opportunity within the body of Christ. So Paul is going to explain some of the basic blessings, or he did explain some of the basic blessings available to us uh, that we are now responsible to leverage for God and for, for, the, for the purpose of the church and the growth and progression of the church. As we step into this new role, as we take on this new identity, uh, from verse five through eight, uh, he gives us three things. Verse five, he says that you were enriched in everything. And then he says in verse seven that you come short in no gift. And then he says in verse eight, you will be confirmed to the end or sustained to the end. So we summarize that those three points like this, that the church is going to enrich us, equip us, and encourage us. Verse 7, when it says, come short and no gift, that means be equipped. And, and verse 8, where it says, be confirmed to the end, that means you're encouraged and you're sustained and you're, the, 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 fan, the, the flame is fanned by God and by his people. 
So as a member of the church, as a participant in the church, as a part of his body, the goal for you is to be enriched. That means your life is better because you're a part of the church. Your life is improved spiritually and literally as you live. Your life is improved. You're equipped to serve the Lord and you are encouraged for those days that you don't feel like it and that you wonder if it's worth it. You're enriched, you're equipped, you're encouraged. That is the basic reason. If somebody says, I don't know why, you know, why should I join the church or why should I go to church? Can I just watch something at home or can I just... You want to talk to somebody about the church? Those two bullet points, this opening, this introduction to 1 Corinthians is a perfect go-to source, resource to say, let me tell you what the Bible says. And, and you can say to people, hey, don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. This is what, what, what Paul said uh, is important about the church and why we should take the church seriously. Um, again, being enriched, equipped, and encouraged as members of the body that we might reach our full potential as disciples of Jesus. So that's basically what we should take away from the first nine verses of this book. And then in verse 10, Paul is going to quickly move on the offense, as in he's going to quickly start addressing things that might take away from us maximizing our opportunity and maximizing our responsibility. He's going to quickly start dealing with what is a laundry list of potential threats to us being the church that we can be and being the Christian that we should be. There are many issues that are gonna be addressed in 1 Corinthians that will frustrate the purpose of the church and hinder the benefit that we can receive as Christians. As we study the whole book, Paul's gonna address a number of issues that have the potential to and have proven to tear down the church, wear down the church and be detrimental to the mission of the church. The setup is like this, from chapter one, verse 10, all the way through the end of chapter 11. That's a lot. If you just want to flip through and look at, there's a, long, a lot of long chapters. From chapter 1, verse 10, through the end of chapter 11, Paul is going to go down a punch list, go down a checklist, and address various threats and concerns. And he's going to talk extensively about what could possibly hinder our you know, uh, fulfilling our role as the church and as we spread the, the gospel, what the church needs to make sure it, it has buttoned up and has taken care of. And then at the end of 1 Corinthians, from chapter 12 through the, chapter 16, he's gonna talk about um, the, the purpose of the church, the desire for the church, and, and the benefit of being a part of the church and, and the role the church has in its community. But that's not before he deals with these potential threats, these things that cannot be entertained, cannot be tolerated, cannot be left un addressed. Now I'll say this, it cannot be overlooked and it's telling regarding which one he addresses first because there are some wild things going on at Corinth. If you've ever, if you've ever read Corinth for Corinthians, there are some wild, I can't believe that's going on in a church community stuff. Uh, but before he addresses rampant immorality, before he addresses marital issues and personal issues in families before he addresses some bad and wrong beliefs the first thing he's going to address well let's hear what it is in verse number 10 now I plead with you brothers and sisters I plead with you brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ so that's the highest appeal he can make that you all speak the same thing or that you all agree on what you are saying and what you are believing or what your motivation is, what your desire, or your ambition is, that you all speak the same thing 
or confess the same thing. When someone says, hey, what are you here for? What are you doing? Why are you a part of the church? That you all have the same answer. That there be no divisions among you. Just going to deal with a little small issue up front, right? That there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly. Now, he could have just said that you be joined together. But he uses the highest uh, you know, word he can possibly use here. He doesn't hold us to, to, he doesn't set the bar low, does he? He's saying, I want you to be perfectly joined together. Now, here's what I know, that you and I can never be perfect. We're sinful. But if Paul says we can be perfectly joined together, that means it's possible. Do you agree? That we're sinful. We're not going to be perfect in our flesh. But this tells me that this is a possible perfection to attain, that we be perfectly joined together. Because you don't have to be perfect to be joined together. You just have to decide to be joined together and not let the other imperfections prevent you from doing that. And we'll get to that. Be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. And judgment does not mean, you know, condemning someone, but judgment means we've made a decision and we're sticking to this decision or we're sticking to this, uh, this, this ambition, this goal that we have. So the first thing he addresses is division. I can't make that big enough or bold enough. Uh, by the time we get to chapter 12, it'll make even more sense why he addresses division first before he addresses a lot of other things that are important, but not as important. We're, we're, we're going to hear uh, tonight, what, what, you know, within this first chapter's context, I think it speaks loud enough, and I think we're going to walk away thinking, well, I, I, I hear what Paul's saying. Um, when we hear the word division, though, we think all sorts of uh, different types of division, but Paul is concerned with a specific kind of division, as he's just outlined. He's concerned with division in the, in, when it comes to the overall ambition of the church, as in, why are we here? What are our motives? When we get together in the room, without, when we're all in the same room, or do we all have the same reason for being here? Which surprisingly might not always be the obvious case. Now, he reports that he's heard that there are several different factions within the church. And, and by that, I mean different rally cries, different motivations. And let's read verses 11 through 13. For it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. Now, this must be an inside track that Paul had. I don't know, you know, somebody must have been taking some notes for Paul. Uh, now, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you who says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, and Apollos was an apostle that was doing ministry in Corinth back in Acts 18. I'm of Cephas, that's Peter, Cephas was his Hebrew name, or I'm of Christ. And some said, hey, we don't need these other guys. We got the words that Jesus said. We don't need anything added to it based on what the apostle said. And he asked this question, is Christ divided? Now that tells us that Paul believed, and, and you and I can have the confidence that even though the Bible may be written by different people, and, and Apollos didn't write any of the scriptures, but he was an apostle proclaiming the scriptures in the first century. Even though the Bible is written by James, Paul, Peter, John, it's all under the same voice of the Spirit. And when they wrote, the Spirit was unifying what they were writing. They didn't write to be contentious with one another or to be, uh, to be antagonistic toward one another. They're writing in agreement of each other. They weren't writing to say, hey, I'm more right than the other guy. Uh, and they were all writing 
again, expounding on what Jesus himself started. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And, and then he's going to go on and say, you know, I didn't baptize any of you. And, and, and you, know, he's, you know, in terms of, hey, I personally am not the reason why any of you are saved. And, and he explains that uh, kind of talking uh, around about in the next couple of verses. Uh, but um, he does not go, uh, not really explain or go into detail uh, about what he wants the overall ambition of the church to be until he gets down to verse 18. Uh, and he introduces it in verse 17, but verses 18 through 31, he's going to tell us what the overall ambition of the church should be, but he doesn't tell us yet. Right now, he's just trying to make sure we know what we, sh- what we should not or what should not be uh, allowed to uh, divide us as a body. Before he tells us what we should all be united around, he's going to make sure that we know better than to entertain any kind of division when it comes to motivation and ambition. Uh, I want to focus on that and and see what their boasts were, and I think it'll make more sense. So he says that some of you are confessing that you are of Paul, of Cephas, of Apollos. And, and again, back in verse 10, based on what he said, when he says you're all, this, you all speak the same thing or, or, or have the same mind, uh, essentially, here's what's going on. That everybody wanted to attach themselves to a name, a tradition, or a set of beliefs so as to claim superiority over the other. So here's to interpret as simply as I can. Here's what was going on in Corinth. That there were, there were these... Uh, Warring, and, and warring is a strong word, but there were these opposing factions in the church and everybody wanted to claim a tradition or a school of thought. Well, this is what Paul said. This is what Peter said. This is what Apollos said. This is what Jesus said. Everybody was trying to claim somebody's belief system and somebody's tradition and use that as a way of saying, I'm more right than you because my guy said this. Now, this is not uncommon compared to, to, to what we deal with in our world, right? People People say, well, this is what I believe, and that's what you believe, and did you not, you know, I go to this kind of church, you go to that kind of church, and all the different belief systems, and why do we boast about them? Because I want to know that I'm more right than you, and you want to know that you're more right than me, and what does that do? It causes us to be at animosity with each other, in contention with each other, and it causes divisions within the church. Pretty simple understanding, a way to understand, Right? It becomes an us versus them. Paul said this versus what Peter said versus what Jesus said versus what Apollo said. Paul says he's heard there is quarreling among them. And he uses the word contentions, but that's the word quarreling or the word fighting. The teachings of any one of the men that they were rallying behind would not have caused them to quarrel because Again, those men, all inspired by the same spirit, agreed with each other, even if you could take the things they said out of context and use them against each other. But what they were doing were they were weaponizing words and ideas of different teachers, and they were using them against the other, specifically against the followers or against the people that really liked those teachers and those apostles. Now, in the cases of the three mortals in the group, Peter, Apollos, and Paul, they never were against each other, and they only were working in harmony of each other. They're on the same team. Now, many in our day and in years past have tried to spark a movement of their own, which has produced all the different versions and variants of the church. They were being pitted against each other uh, as a result of what men do with the words of other men, twisting, manipulating, so that it looks like I'm more right than you, or you know, you're wrong in that area, I'm right, here's why. 
And here's why this is going on. And again, I'm not smarter than anybody. This is just my understanding of human nature. The Bible makes it pretty clear what's going on in human nature. This is not a, this is not a thing that only happens in the church. This happens in every walk of life. Our nature in any walk of life is to be competitive. We naturally are looking for ways to justify ourselves over and against the other, over and against others. That is something you do and you may have the heart of gold and you may be as sanctified as can be, but I promise you somewhere deep down behind all that gold and all that glitter is this nature within you that that sometimes rears its head, maybe sometimes, maybe a lot of times, that nature in all of us that is competitive, that looks for ways to say, well, you know what, I'm a little better than them. And that makes me feel better when I feel like I've got a leg up on other people because I feel like somehow, someway, I'm doing better in life. And that makes me feel better about the bad days that I have that nobody else sees. We underestimate our flesh. We are constantly scanning the environment. Our our eyes are constantly scanning the horizon for an opportunity to build ourselves up against the other person. We, We don't realize we're doing this. We do this subconsciously. We are always doing this Scarily enough, we're doing this with the people we're closest to. We're doing this with our families. We're doing this with our husbands, our wives, our kids. We're doing this with our parents. We're doing this with our church family. We're always scanning the horizon and we're always dealing with this little temptation that says, huh, that's an, that's, that's an area I've got up on you. That's an area I've got superiority over you. This is why so many of the world's voices are constantly putting us against one another. You know why? And, and, and again, you know why politicians are always trying to talk about the other, other side so negatively? Because they know that in all of us is this little nature that loves to be us versus them. And we love to win. We love it. Our flesh seizes the opportunity and the God of this world knows what we like to eat and he feeds it to us as often as we'll come to him to eat it. So the church is not of this world. And when Paul was helping it get off the ground, he was saying, beware of that thing in you that doesn't see this as a negative thing and also that doesn't see the church's level ground, that doesn't see the church's common ground, lest you take things meant for mutual upbuilding and turn them into tools of destruction. Now, there are people that compare to Paul's example here uh, when it comes to denominational affiliation. You know, our day and age, people claim Calvin and Luther and Wesley and other people that have been influential leaders throughout church history. We don't know, I I don't know the the motive of each of those different men and each of those different church leaders. Uh, I assume they didn't want to tear the other down, but we know that Apollos and Paul and Peter were all working for the same team. We know that. I don't know about Luther and Calvin and and Wesley and the other people. They might have been a little bit, you know, uh, they might have been planning on trying to take the other person down. I don't know their hearts, but I know these guys' hearts. These were in unity around the same mindset, around the same mission. And that's what Paul was talking about here, that we have the same mind, the same ambition, the same motivation. They were trying to make it about various ways of expressing and articulating beliefs. But Paul says, no, 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 no. What matters most is that we share an agenda, we share a motivation, we share a passion. Let's not get lost in the weeds of trying to say, well, you believe that and you believe that. Well, who's more right and who's more wrong? Let's have a, convert, let's have a debate about it. Paul says, listen, listen, guys. Let's, let's, remember, let's remember why we're here. Let's ask the question. Why are we doing this? Why are we gathering here? Is it about being more right? 
Is it about being more righteous? Is it about asserting our agenda and our ideas? No, no, it's about none of those things. Paul tells them, don't use my words and don't use me in a, to justify yourself or to push some worldly agenda. If you're claiming that you only listen to the words of Jesus, not man, hey, I'm fine with that. But let's remember what Jesus said and let's remember what Jesus was all about. And this is what he really narrows in on in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize or to start my own division in the church, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, as in I didn't bring anything new to the table. I didn't bring anything for you to use against somebody else. That's not the reason I wrote anything that I wrote down. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And this, this is why we are here and this is what our ambition should be influenced by and this is what our motivation should be colored by. The cross of Jesus. And this might be the most important word we hear as church members in our lives. No selfish agenda of man, no self-righteous mindset makes it through, makes it past the cross of Jesus Christ. See, if we come to church with our minds on the cross, self does not get through. It does not even get near. Self leaves itself at the door because we're not here for self here for Jesus. We're here because of his cross. And if we had that at the center of every one of our motivations and ambitions as church members, there would be no division. You say, well, what about all the problems that might spur, spur up? And we'll talk about those. But let's, let's go back to the quarreling and the contentions. In the most basic sense, why do we fight with each other? In any scenario, in any setting, why do we fight with each other? James actually answers that question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? No, 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 James, it's not my fault. The reason why I fight is because they're wrong. But James says, you're the one who got stirred up at them. You could have chose not to fight, but you did. But, but they were wrong. I, James, James says, I don't, I don't care how wrong they were. You, you see what he's doing? You chose to do something with your passions that were contrary to the passion that should be at the center of your heart. You desire and don't have, so you murder, and he's being hyperbolic there. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. James says the reason why we fight is because we want our way and we don't get our way, so we bulldoze them down until we do. But James says, whoa, 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 whoa. If we're here for the right reasons... Our passions never even make it to the table. The most basic instinct of every human is to fight for our way. But what does the cross do to our selfish instincts? It crucifies them, right? What does the cross do to selfishness? It crucifies it. 
because that's what crosses do, right? Look at the cross. What part of our way is anywhere near one of those? What is Jesus about? Jesus said, not my will, but thy God's will be done. And, and, and the week before he died, Jesus said this, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come. And he says, Father, glorify your name. And, and that's John's version of thy will be done. Self is going to be crucified because it's God's will, not mine. And then the night before Jesus died, he prayed these words about you and me in every church that will ever gather. I pray that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe. So again, why is this important? Because if the church is going to be the church, which is be the light and be the mission-minded, you know, making a difference movement that it can be, it's imperative that there be no divisions among us, but that we might be one with our mind on the cross of Jesus. And if the cross is at our center, then it keeps us from ever budging from that unity because the cross is all about selflessness. It's all about God, not us. And, and Jesus said this in the next verse, the glory that you have given me, as in the reason, glory means, you know, Fame, you know, eternal fame, reason for living. The glory you've given me, Father, I've given to them as in I have set the same goalpost for them that you set for me, that they may be one even as we are one. As in, hey God, we agree on what I'm living for. That's what their mission is. And this is what Paul is getting at and why he calls for the same mindset, the same agenda, that we come under the same passion. The idea of coming under the same cross-centric passion, whereby all of our other decisions are made and convictions are formed through the lens of the cross, what it means for us and what it means for others. Jesus even said in John 17, I'm not praying for the world because, I'm, because the world won't get this unless the, unless the church gets it and takes it to them. He's not counting on the world to get it right. Unless the church gets it, the world doesn't even have a chance. Division in the church comes from advancing our own agendas over Jesus's. Quarreling comes from demoting Jesus and diminishing the cross. We can be right, 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 but have no measure of righteousness in us. And here's why. The cross is not just about the positions we have and the beliefs we have. The cross is an issue of posture and behavior. You ever wonder, you ever wonder why ch churches and traditions are often more focused on how right they are than how righteous they are? And you ever wonder why certain traditions and certain churches, and all of us can be this way, where we get a little arrogant the more we know, and we get a little angry towards those that don't know what we know. We may believe in the cross, but we don't bow to it. And we sure aren't bearing it. You hear that? We may lift high the cross, but we don't bow at it. And we really, really don't bear it. 
Listen, I am as conservative, reformed, covenantal, biblical, hyper-obedient to the scriptures as you can get. You will not find someone who amens every passage of the Bible like I do. I promise you that. But none of that amounts to anything if I don't bow at the very cross I lift up. And if I don't bear that cross myself, then I can lift it up all day long and sing about it all day long. But if I don't bow to it and I don't bear it, I am noise. Somebody said that one time, right? If all I do is just identify the sins of others that are on the cross, but I don't bear it myself, I'm not a harbinger of anything but division. I'm not following Jesus' agenda. I'm following mine. Does he not care about what's right? Of course he cares, but he wants the church to properly represent him. Paul comes right out of the gate and says, I want to eliminate any notion of division in the church, clearly stating that every church member should be all about the cross. You ever think about what the cross means? What does it mean to be people of the cross? What it means to be under the cross? We should be a people of the cross. We bow at it and we bear it. And if you spend your day bowing at the cross and you spend your day burying the cross, you will be a person that understands the importance of unity, the importance of coming together in a body of believers that may not all behave the same, may not all believe the same, but as much as depends on you, you are gonna be a light to that world. You are gonna be a light to that community and you are gonna show them what God has done in you so that he might do it in them. You won't say, well, I know this and I've studied this and my beliefs are better than yours. You won't be a person that antagonizes or tears down or judges or condemns. You'll be a person that builds up and lifts up and encourages those around you. We must be united around this truth as opposite and against our flesh as it may seem. There's power available to us that we will only experience by way of the cross. Verse 18, Paul identifies this might sound a little crazy to some. For the message message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, as in those that are not in on this. But those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And, and, And God makes a statement here. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. When people come to me and tell me how to run my business, I will destroy them. Now, they may not seem like they're being affected too much but spiritually speaking they have no inheritance where it counts it's pretty strong words isn't it people who know the power of God is found in a savior who laid his life down for the world who sought the good of others the glory of God over his own good and over his own body that is what the church should be all about likewise we are his body Think about this. We are the body of Christ, so we should have the same posture that Jesus had. He sought his Father's glory, not his own. He sought the good of others, not his own. This isn't a temple, and we aren't Pharisees. We are here in spite of our brokenness, alongside other broken people, promoting the collective good of his body so that together we might get better. To the world, this seems like weakness, This seems like laying over. It seems pathetic. But to us who know Jesus, how truly, who truly know what he did for us and what he does for us, we know this as the saving power of God and we don't want to boast in and of ourselves at all. 
Jesus spoke on the way of the cross on the Sermon, of the, at the, on, the sermon on the Mount to which people laughed at him because that was not the way of the world. Remember, he said these things were blessed in his kingdom. Those that were poor and mournful, meek and hungry and merciful. Those that were peaceful and persecuted. People that did not have the fill of this world, but that were depending on God to fill them with things that they could not get of this world. People that were meek and humble. People that gave mercy, even when it wasn't deserved. Now we've discussed how Pilate was insulted by Jesus when he refused to fight back and took pleasure in nailing him to a cross. But think about what Jesus did whenever he submitted to the cross. He did what we cannot do in and of ourselves. Our flesh refuses to lay down its lust and lay down its selfishness. Jesus laid down what we fight so desperately to preserve. But he finished the work. He delivered us on the cross. And now we can break free from our flesh because of what Jesus did, because of his invitation that he gives from the cross. Think about what the disciples did as Jesus was arrested. Think about how much they proved that we'll never give up, we'll never surrender, we'll never let go of our way and our will in and of ourselves. When they came to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? Peter took out his sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off the right ear. And Jesus said, Peter, shall I not drink the cup that God has for me? Put up your sword. And then Mark tells us, they all left and fled. You know, lay down our lives, give up this world? Of course not, Jesus, see you later. And the Bible says that Peter went and joined in the courtyard of the soldiers and of the, of the people that were, you know, sentencing Jesus. He was warming himself by their fire, which is a message in and of itself. And when somebody said you were with him, he denied it. When Peter felt like his life was on the line, he was quick as anybody to deny that he ever knew Jesus. You see what you and me will do in the minute, in the moment that we're pressed by this world? Our flesh says, see you later. <laughs> I don't go by the way of the cross. That's for foolish people. This nature raises back up again and again, but Paul says we must be on guard. And, and here's why this matters to the church. Christ will not tolerate this nature in his body because guess what? His body bears a cross. Think about this. We are the body of Christ. What did the physical body of Jesus do at the most important moment of his life? He bore a cross for you and for me. So what should the church perpetually be doing? Bearing his cross if we are his body after all. If we aren't bearing our crosses, if we aren't denying ourselves, if we aren't seeking God's glory, we are in rebellion against Jesus. Think about what that statement says about a lot of so-called churches. They look religious, they sound religious, but spiritually, they're dead because the way of the cross seems too foolish to them. Verse 20 should put us all on our knees. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God made fool, not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? How many of us got in because of what we know? 
How many of us got in because of how smart we are? How many of us got in because of what we brought to the table? Come on, none of us got to God based on what we know or what we did. But let us learn a little bit and suddenly we're members of the Sanhedrin and we're incredulous to anybody that is a little bit behind us, right? Let us get a little bit spiritual and we look down on everybody below us, don't we? Let us attend a few church services. Next thing we know it, we're looking at the rest of the world like they're the lepers that we need to avoid. Crazy how quickly it happens, doesn't it? That tells you why Paul is addressing it in chapter one of this book. God saved us through Jesus being poured out for us. We are only filled with the power of God because Jesus poured himself out for us. We can't forget this, church. And you know why I preach this so hard and so passionately? Because if I forget this as a pastor, I am useless. I'm useless. And listen, I could come in here to a Wednesday night and to, a, to our church on a Sunday and I could preach the opposite of this and everybody would clap and say, yeah, of course, Justin, because we all believe the same stuff. But I am not gonna be a pastor that refuses to always hold that mirror up to us that says, this is what our propensity, this is what our flesh will do. And if we want to be a church that's always aware of what God has done and what our mission is, beware lest we forget the grace that saved us all. Beware lest we begin to build up a wall to divide ourselves from a world or each other. We can't forget this. When someone else comes in running on empty, we need to think twice before telling them what they must do or what they must know because we received from Jesus based on his grace alone. Everybody has come to Jesus has come the same way. And how we represent him matters so much because we are his body. Do you, do you hear that? We are his body. When the world sees the church, it should see Jesus on the cross. Not in terms of the suffering that he felt, but his posture toward the world. He suffered for us. The church should be willing to be humble, submissive, sending a message to the world that God so loved the world. And if you wanna know what, how, much, how much God loves the world, look at us. In fact, John said this, and he wrote this 60 years after Jesus was in heaven. No one has ever seen God as in, hey, he's not here right now. His spirit is, but the physical body of Jesus has been in heaven for 60 years. And John's telling his generation, nobody's ever gonna see the physical body of Jesus in this life anymore. He's in heaven. But if we love one another, God will abide in us and his love will be perfected in us and he will be seen in us. John, who saw Jesus personally, who lived with him for three years, John says, if we get this right, Jesus will be as visible in our body as he was when he walked on this earth. John wrote that. The guy who lived, walked beside Jesus. And John says, hey, Jesus is something special. But if we get this right, me and you, the hands and feet and all the different parts, people will see Jesus as clearly. But the opposite is true as well. If we get this wrong, whew, God help whoever looks into that picture frame. And there's a lot of places I'm 
afraid that are putting out a pretty ugly picture. Let's take this beyond the church as we wrap up. What should we want for our lives and our testimonies more than that it be said that we looked like Jesus? What do you want the most to be said at your funeral? I think about this a lot because I have to do a lot of funerals. I do a lot of funerals for people that I've never met before. People come to me and say, hey, Justin, hey, pastor. You know, and I'll do it. I'll do it because I love you and I love people. But, you know, that's, that's how this, this business works. I think about a lot about what people will say at my funeral. Somebody's going to do it one day. Maybe the person that's going to speak isn't alive yet. I don't know. Somebody's going to stand over me and they're going to say all this stuff. And it's going to be flowery and all this. You know, I don't want to make anything up, but they're going to say some things. But what do we want more than the people to say they looked like Jesus. They behaved, they loved like Jesus. What do people, what do you want people to say about us as a church when they walk out more than anything? Jesus is there. Listen, they don't have to know what all the doctrines and all the beliefs and all, I'm, hey, I'll, I'll, get, I'll go as theologically deep as you want to go. But that's not what God is most concerned about. Verse 22, Paul says, the Jews request a sign. The Greeks want wisdom. The Jews equated holiness and godliness with success and wonders. As in, if God's really there, you're gonna see the results, the money and the success and the power. And the Greeks were impressed by the logic and the wisdom someone could spout off. It's so tempting to judge ourselves and critique ourselves based on the way the world and its systems judge and critique. But what is Paul telling us here? Well, let's read on. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks, foolishness. To those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is Paul telling us here? God is glorified when our lives look like Jesus. The world will make you go crazy trying to measure up to its standards. This whole idea was a stumbling block to the Jews and sounded like nonsense to the Greeks. But let's, let's judge Jesus based on the world's metrics, shall we? Let's, let's look at Jesus' life from the outside. He was rejected by his own family. His mom at one point, his brothers didn't believe he was Messiah. They thought he was crazy. James and Jude said, hey, he's beside himself. He's outside, he's out of his mind. Jesus was rejected by his own family. Who, who wants that? Nobody. Jesus was homeless, nowhere to lay his head. He was poor. He had zero political power. What does the world say about that? Not too good, right? Jesus gave up his life. He was humiliated. He was crucified without anything on. Humiliated on a cross. Now, we don't strive. I'm not saying that we all want to do that. We all want to go through that. But my point is... If we strive for what the world offers and the world approves, we'll never get close to Jesus because Jesus wasn't anything like this world's acceptance and approval, was he? The weakness of God is stronger than all the power, wealth, and wisdom of man. Let's not trade his cross 
for any crown of this world. I'd rather be bearing a cross for Jesus than wearing any crown this world offers me. And as the church, as church members, let's not put on those theological religious crowns that make us feel like we're better and smarter than holier. We are called to bear crosses. We are saved because Jesus died on the cross. If we trust in him, that's enough. Let me read these last few verses to you. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, many noble are called, or those things didn't get you here. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things or the small things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. As in God does not operate the way the world does. No flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. If we want God to work in our lives, we're gonna have to submit to his way, which looks sometimes opposite the way the the world looks and the way we think it should work. We must all walk out to where he is. We must do things his way. And his way always begins with a cross. His body is ever bearing a cross. The church is here to build us up, to better us all, which is why it cannot entertain the methods or tactics of the world. It's called to operate by God's way. We all come to it with our own ideas on how power and money and control and success works and people should work, but we must do things God's way lest we lose the power of the cross. We can be filled with money, filled with people, filled with all the things this world looks for and be empty of the power of God. I'd rather be bearing the cross of Jesus full of his spirit and empty of the rest of the world than the opposite. Even if my flesh often thinks the other way is the better way. I've been there. I've seen how church works that way. It's not worth the trade. We aren't after those things. We're after his spirit who gives a power and wealth and wisdom that exceeds that of this world. We must bear our cross and how we relate to God and each other because we are his body. And where you find Jesus, you will always find a cross. So let's bow to it and let's bear it and see God change lives. People that come into this church, they must let them see a people that are always before the cross and bearing a cross because that's where Jesus is and that's where the power of God is. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this humbling reminder of how your kingdom operates. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us where the power is and where it's from. Help us to be a people that bears your cross because we want to be near Jesus and he is always bearing his cross. Lord, help us be a people that reflects you to the world. Help us to be a people that aren't divided with each other or divided against. Help us be a people that are united together around this equalizer, the cross of Jesus that brings us all to the same place on level ground 
and gives us all the same invitation and opportunity to be filled with Jesus and to become like Jesus. May it be said of us, Jesus is with them. Jesus is in them. We ask this in his name. Amen.